0: Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen. It's Captain America week. But first, we talk about Apple content services getting cut in China. Cedic Bali director Wei Shun's new film. And whether Hollywood is failing in China. Plus, we'll talk about the new romantic comedy, My Wife is a Superstar. East West
1: and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to you from this news desk this week in Wong Kar Wai's Prop Studio is Mr. Kevin Ma. Why am I coming from Wong Kar Wai's Prop Studio this week, Paul? Well, I thought it was somewhat relevant to the... uh the film in question
0: oh i got it yeah yeah. sorry i totally just see i totally blanked out on
1: this film i totally forgot about it already you know i I can't blame you for that so um i I had actually misplaced my notes and i was like i can't remember anything about this film without my notes where are my notes uh but (laughs) i finally found them so yeah it's uh we're gonna get to the film eventually but it's a big week we've got a lot of media stuff going on of course game of thrones started a couple nights ago are you current sir dude dude not game of thrones sir Silicon Valley
0: started ah. this
1: week. Yeah. That show is awesome. Are you, are you watching that show? I watched the first season and i I'm not caught up beyond that, so yeah. it gets better and
0: better, man. This week this this uh, the first the first episode really has like a classic um line, you know, called Rick you see like a hashtag on the internet called Rigby. I don't know if you've seen it? No, I haven't. But it is, like, absolutely, you have to watch, well, you don't really have to watch the show to understand it, but it is, like, absolutely just, just, just classic. It just gets better, you know, because Mike Judge has has a, has a tendency for coming up with these, you know, bites that, that somehow, you know, really quotable, like, sound bites.
1: that I think Rigby is going to get quoted uh, for a while from here on. So one of many shows I need to, to try and catch up on, hopefully during the summer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Seriously, I mean, so like Game, Game of Thrones. I'm like two seasons behind. I've given up on it. It's, it's too many characters, man. It's it's 45 minutes a week, and it's like 12 episodes, and they're like it jumps around to 50 different plot lines. I can't follow it.
1: At yeah, all. Yeah, that's a big criticism for this first episode of season six. Um, a lot of people were not very happy with it because of you know nothing. Uh, we would say nothing major, and at least in terms of Game of Thrones uh, style. Uh, has happened, and one of the you know one of the things we realize is that they're supposedly going through and stopping at the end of season seven. Right. Um, they're into new newish territory now because they've caught up with the books and are moving beyond the books. So with last night's episode out of the way, what that basically means is there's 19 episodes left and counting. So every episode uh, that we get past is like you know one less, and so. It's it's got this sense of all right, you got all this stuff going on. You got to kind of hurry up and tell the story now, unless they are going to do. I heard, did hear rumors that there might be an actual movie that sort of continues on. Uh, you know, after the the season seven finale. Yeah, well, know. guess what? E- even the movie will only have about twenty minutes
0: of plot development for each story.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a big week. It's Captain America week, as you said. So lots of stuff to do. Lots of stuff to be excited about i've actually uh, taken a vacation day tomorrow so i can you know just go out and enjoy the day with my wife as we watch the film um it's one of those films that we're very fortunate that we actually get it a little bit earlier than than the states for a change or or than other places so two weeks baby happy about that um so yeah it's a it's a big week but we've got some news to cover and we've also got a review to get to so let me throw it over to kevin at the news desk with this week's news
0: Alright, over here at the news desk. I mean there are actually some small talk stuff I wanna I wanna cover, I mean film related. Well one one is and one isn't, but we'll do that later. Um here at the news desk we wanna talk about a couple of things happening in China, Taiwan, nothing in Hong Kong. I think that's kind of a good thing, I guess. Nothing usually news is bad news, I think, these days in Hong Kong, so better that we don't have any news for Hong Kong. Anyway, looking at China, um apparently the iTunes Store and the iBook services were cut in China last week. Yeah, there's not much to say, but I mean, apparently it was uh, under the order of the uh, the administration of uh, radio, film, and television. They ordered uh, – the Apple iTunes store had been, been online for about half a year, but they were ordered – to taken to be taken offline uh, last week, um, there was some conspiracy theory uh, asking if there was um, had anything to do with ten Hong Kong film ten years being on the Hong Kong iTunes store. But of course, that's ridiculous because the catalogs of each country are different. So if Apple is you know iTunes store is carrying some subversive anti China China movie in the U.S., you know. China hasn't asked, hasn't hasn't blocked the, the the Chinese iTunes store because of that. So it would be ridiculous to think that Hong Kong's iTunes store is anything to do with China. But rather, um, it looks like it is actually more of a trade move. As in, it is possible that that China is is uh, trying to protect its own video platforms, um, like Le TV Youku, Tudou, Ten, uh, Tencent, and all those video platforms. And and in that move in a move to sort of protect those services the uh sarved people decide to i guess order taken offline also coming out of china today Disney Life, which is also a VOD service um, that was uh, that's Disney's video service, but it was created in China in collaboration with Alibaba, was also taken offline uh, today by the same regulators, which is especially bad for Disney, considering that their Shanghai Disneyland is opening in less than two months in China. So this is sort of bad publicity for the company in China. Now, I, I, I haven't written that article yet. I think I mentioned it before that I don't believe that China needs these video services. Like, okay, they, they already have Yuku. They already have Tudou, They already have... Uh, uh, the, the video platform is already huge in China. The market is already huge. There's already a lot of different um, local companies competing. So what can services like Netflix or Amazon Video or Apple's iTunes store, what can they really bring to China? I don't, I don't think... I think the answer is really not that much, except the fact that there's brand recognition. Other than that, actually, you know, iTunes Store, iTunes Store and Apple, uh, Apple, iTunes Store in China or or even Netflix, they'll never defeat, they'll never be able to beat the uh, local local companies in terms of content because they don't know how to carry local content the way that the uh, local uh, video platforms do. So. I doubt that the iTunes store was really huge in China for the past 6 months. I think that there's a period that the consumers need to adapt to the service and I don't think it's gotten to that point yet because people are barely you barely getting used to the paid video services yet in the with the local companies. So, I don't think that I think that the iTunes store got taken down with without much traction to begin with and honestly, except for a couple of good, you know, China sucks stories. I don't think it really amounts to much. Paul, what do you think? I know we, we we always get an argument touching on this, but I don't see I don't know. I what do you think about this?
1: Well, it's hard for me. I because uh, I, I did talk about this earlier on uh, I was guesting on another podcast and this was one of the news stories that I brought up. You know, I said it, I found it interesting because when you read the sort of the New York Times piece and the Fortune magazine piece on this issue, they clearly lay out the sort of protectionism position, right, that that you just mentioned, whereas the local papers like South China Morning Post and others were really highlighting this connection between, oh, how come it's so coincidental that this happens right before 10 years, you know, gets released? So they were really trying to push that connection. I, I don't have enough information to really say. But I do find it just the idea that that, that they're willing to do this kind of thing um, as a kind of local protectionism, it just smacks of bad business. So going forward, why would any company then want to continue to take the time, take the money to you know, set up infrastructure, to, to set up services, to invest in China, if this is what they're going to end, end up doing You know, six months down the road? Um, And they obviously don't seem to care about the big intellectual property names like uh, Apple or Disney. And I'm assuming that, okay, sure, we could say that the iTunes store, you know, the Hong Kong store is nothing compared to the U.S. store. And I'm guessing the China store is is, is not that great either. But I have to imagine they have some content there that is not being offered through, you know, these other platforms. There Um, isn't, actually, because... There not because actually hollywood studios
0: um if they're smart they know how to do business in china they all signed large package content deals with local platform services giving them a whole package of films that were never in in cinemas um so in fact that's why i keep saying that uh, Amer- um I, except I the see- fact that it's, it's a part of the whole cultural imperialism of america
1: i don't think china needs the Apple iTunes store, nor do they need Netflix. I, I could see that perhaps with Apple, but why Disney? I'm, I'm sure that Disney is keeping exclusive content for their streaming service. Like they tend is, to do for their channel, right? That is a um, bit weird because it was a partnership signed with a local company, Alibaba. Yeah. So so
0: you're right. It, it, that that part is strange. I mean, the thing is, okay, let's, let's forget the whole like reason why it got taken down. I mean, the fact whether these things need to be in China, whether they have to be in China, except for the fact that, like you said, you know, it's a brand name. It's a brand name. Now, uh, Disney comes with a brand name, or Apple. You know, iTunes Store comes with a brand name. But is Disney not going to have anywhere else to to sell its content in China? I don't think. I don't think so.
1: Well, there are a couple differences. In the case of <laughs> Apple, it's it's a hardware issue too, right? Because if I'm using an iPhone or an iPad which I've spent a lot of money for at an Apple store in mainland China. And now suddenly I can't consume content on that device. And that's basically China's way of saying, well, you shouldn't have bought this device in the first place. You should have gone and bought, you know, a Xiaomi or some other China brand. You know, you but need to those, support uh, the China brand. So but all, the, all, the, all the Chinese uh, uh, streaming service, they all have IT, uh,
0: uh, Apple apps. You know so so i I'm not sure if I think I think it is a trade I think it is a very um ugly obvious way of trade prote- protectionist measure I think it is, but I don't think it's in the, in it goes as far as trying to stop people from using Apple phones I mean I'm sure like half the government uses Apple phones right but but actually I think what it does might have to do with is Apple's refusal to to cooperate with with Chinese Chinese authorities over locked iPhones. Mm. I mean, that's a possibility. They know that Apple's not going to play play ball, and therefore, okay, fine. We're going to show you our power. You want you want a foreign you want a foreign company. You want to try and work in China, but you won't cooperate with us. Let's see how you do it without iTunes Store. Let's see how you do it when we regulate you every step of the way. Let's see how if you don't play ball. Let's see how you how you can play ball in China. Yeah,
1: it just again seems to be uh, one step forward, two steps back with China these days, right? I mean. <laughs> the i The idea is that do they actually need the these services? no, do do any of us need these services? not really. Um, but at, again, at the same time, if you talk about the idea of global business and partnerships and and these kinds of things, you know that China was initially trying to sell to the world, you know, come here and and you know do business with us and you know invest in us and help us grow. and then they you know, turn the protectionist card on. Um, Eventually, I think that's going to come back to hurt them. And you can make the argument that they don't need these outside companies. And perhaps that's true. Perhaps, you know, Baidu and, and all these other companies are now big enough to exist solely behind the Great Firewall. But they had that same kind of attitude back during the Cultural Revolution, where they basically said, you know what, we don't need the rest of the world. We are fine within our own confine, and we'll just cut ourselves off from everyone. And it didn't turn out too well at that time. Maybe it'll be different this time. I don't know, but history seems to say that that's not necessarily the 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 route to success, as it were. I,
0: I don't think China. I, I think China is going a different route other than the Cultural Revolution. I mean, in terms of um, conservatism, it is going back sort of the ways of the nineteen seventies. But it is a new global age, and it is an age where China has money. So as long as they have money. They, they don't have to say anything to attract the companies to come here. All they have to say, all they have to do is keep sending tourists out, keep spending money, keep buying up companies around the world and say, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice bl- but to listen to us. You don't have a choice but to play on our, our, our field, to play on our level. That's It's not they're not closing off. They're expanding and they're expanding and telling people that and they learned a the lesson from America. America does the same thing, go around the world and say, you got to play by our rules, you got to play our way. China is just playing on that playbook. And, and yeah, we don't agree with the ideology, but I think that it's hard to ignore that America does it the same way, except that we just happen to agree
1: with the ideology. More yeah, so. but there's a difference, right? I mean... Uh... When, when
0: the, method, w- I think method when wise, the U.S. government true.
1: goes to Apple and say, hey, you, you need to unlock these phones, and Apple says, "Ah, no, we're not going to do that. The U.S. government then doesn't shut down, uh, you know, streaming services for Apple.
0: Well, no, no, <laughs> the no, no. The that's not what States. I'm talking about. I'm talking about when they go around to the – well, let's look like at the film industry. Instead of – you know, they go around the world and they set up operations to distribute their own films, meaning they are literally colonizing the film industries of the world. That's what they did. That's what Hollywood did in the 80s. They went to Korea. They went to America. They went to Japan. They set up their own operation. Instead of giving their films to local distributors, they just just did it themselves. And that is that kind of spreading the power. Just buying up, again, buying up the world. I'm not talking about they're doing the same, their same ideology or they're trying to say, give the same message. I think America is not political enough to say, we're going to take over the world. We're trying trying to, you know, exert uh, uh, our influence around the world. In fact, they're just saying, we're just trying to make money. We just want to make money. We just want all your money. Instead, China is actually doing this on an ideological level, is that you have to play it our way. Not We're not going to take your money. We're going to own you, and you're going to have to follow our ideology. And that's the difference between China and America. Hmm. Kind of going down that same route, um, uh, recently, um, Hollywood films haven't really done so well in, in China. But of course, you kind of have to look at the facts first before you kind of get reactionary. But um, anyway, so so Variety has a report um, um, about uh, the recent recent performance of Hollywood films in, in China. Um, in particular, Batman vs. Superman. The film took a huge, huge dive in the second weekend in China. I think like 80% dive. And it has only made roughly around 96 million u.s dollars after it's the end of its theatrical which is actually less than terminator genesis of course so that means you know hollywood is getting kind of reactionary like oh my god we're we gonna do oh my god are, are chinese people not watching not watching hollywood films anymore blah 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 i i actually think that it's it's almost too reactionary i think a couple of flops doesn't really spell anything i mean um, yeah, last year you had huge, huge hits like Jurassic Park, you had you know, Furious 7, you have, you know, Avengers. But, you know, a couple of things is that, first of all, I mean, yes, Star Wars didn't do well, Kung Fu Panda 3 did, did less than expected, but Zootopia has done actually really, really well. I, I think it's really rather the the quality of the offering that's really a problem at the moment. I mean... Say what you will about, you know, Jurassic World or Avengers or Furious 7, right? I mean, these films sort of have a built-in audience. Jurassic Park has always done well. Uh, the the Marvel movies have always done well. The Fast and Furious franchise has now, there's a third theatrical release. So, of course, it's going to do well. Whereas, you know, where you have Star Wars, which has not released a single film theatrically before this. It is actually untested franchise in China you know it is known as number seven of a of a, of a franchise you know which six movies have never played in china kung fu panda 3 I, i'm not i think might have suffered it didn't do really that much worse it actually you know surpassed the second film's box office and you know so what it didn't make like you know billions and billions of dollars i think that this is sort of Hollywood is so used to seeing this this continuous growth in China that they sort of can't even take a little bump in the row. And, and let's face it, come on, Batman vs Superman, it sucks. Come on, let's face it, it sucks. It sucks. Like it didn't. It deserved to drop by eighty percent in China. Let's face it, right. And also, this this actually the couple of weeks. Um, April is usually a really slow period for films in China anyway, because it's sort of the run up to the, to the uh, golden week holiday golden week uh, in May is another major period for films this year. In China, we have a uh, book of love, the Tang Wei, uh, Tang Wei Wu the the uh, Finding Mr. Right sequel. You have Phantom of the Opera. I mean, Phantom of the Theater, the horror film. That's a follow up to the House that Never Dies. And yeah, you have three major releases coming. So before that, I mean, the the, studi- the Hong Kong, I mean, the uh, Chinese Chinese uh, studios aren't going to really throw out their best films because you know we got a holiday period coming up. So April is just traditionally slow. I don't know. Is that something to worry about? I mean, China, the the thing is, the Chinese market is is always unpredictable, and and I think that again, it's sort of a case of what we're talking about about Hollywood sort of find every this sort of entitlement, this sort of sense of entitlement from Hollywood that. Our film is is should do well. It deserves to do well just because we're Hollywood. Just because we're dumping our films in a bunch of you know in fifty percent of of theaters in China. Therefore, they should do well. I mean, I, I think they're sort of coming to grips with realizing that Chinese audiences may be developing taste. I don't know, but anyway, Captain America is coming out like next uh, on
1: May fifth in China. It's going to do gangbusters. So I don't know what they're so worried about. Well I I think if we talk about the idea of you know bad films doing badly in China that's not always a, an accurate predictor right because i mean look at the uh, from Vegas to Macau movies <laughs> Now 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 actually to be
0: fair to be fair um Vegas to Macau 3 didn't do particularly like extremely well compared to as to its uh, uh the, the rise in revenue it sort of stuck the same yeah. um switch other people would say that he actually suffered the same the same sort of pattern as Batman vs. Superman. Uh, it also dropped by a huge, huge amount. Actually, the box office is very yeah. front-loaded. You know, mass audiences will watch shitty films. I don't think Chinese audiences are particularly prone to to watching crappier films than usual, right?
1: Well, I, yeah, I think that's part of Hollywood's problem, right? Is They, right. they think that, all right, a movie that is supposed to do well just because it's an effects extravaganza that somehow the chinese audience are are like mindless drones and oh special effects wow we must spend our money and go see it i mean if the if the word gets out that a movie's not very good you know starting in the states and has massive drops why do you think the chinese audience is going to be any different right i mean that, that that's just that just makes sense. You make a bad movie, people aren't going to spend their money to go see it, you know, especially if it's a big 3D thing and it's, you know, got the extra cost associated with it. Star Wars, we talked about, uh, science fiction is not really a huge, huge thing in in China. Maybe that will change, but it's just not that big of a thing. It's not that big of a thing here. I mean, actually
0: science fiction, um, Hollywood science fiction films tend to do generally extra well in China. Like they it tends to do like even better business than in Hollywood for some reason, like not on top of Hollywood sci-fi, not not Chinese sci-fi. But I think Star Wars, you have a problem. It's not a sci-fi problem. It's rather a real, a really a a, a a franchise problem, right? Like the the generation that watches the new Star Wars film, that doesn't exist in China, that generation. That generation grew up in Cultural Revolution. They grew up in a closed off China. They never watched a Star Wars. They did not grow up with Star Wars film. I think the biggest Star Wars fan base is part of people my age. Right. Or just even younger. So there was that problem.
1: But even so, you don't have uh you, you don't have the same kind of culture that you have, even in places like Japan, for example, right? You don't you don't have a culture of science fiction conventions? and comic book conventions, at least not the way that they exist in the States, that have people dressing up in cosplay, that have people making fan films. You know, you don't have multiple seasons of Star Trek translated over into into uh, Chinese, except in, you know, very sort of, what we would say, uh, less than legal sites and, and <laughs> places, you know, um, as i it, tracked a few down, but... You know, you, you just don't have the, the exposure and, and the, the sort of the history there. And so, yeah, I mean, a, a, I think a film can come and, and and do well, but you just don't have this sort of in, ingrained culture, you know, cinematic culture um, that I think that the, the, the West has kind of taken. And, and like you said, it's kind of forced it into other areas. Um, it just hasn't been able to do that in China.
0: I think that the '90s, the post so-called post '80s generation, sort of have that ingrained. I mean, look at Transformers. Transformers does especially well in China, not because they have a love for American culture, it's because they have a love for Japanese. They have a love for Transformers. They have a love. At least my generation has a male men my age has has a love for Gundam and Japanese uh, sci-fi, and actually that love for robots and you know as much as we as i say the, the or you say the transformer when we suck there are actually a lot more people who enjoy these movies than we think and yes i've yet, yet to meet love, one we, well
1: chinese
0: <laughs> well i think I think china's uh love for sci-fi is is rather shallow in that they they get what they look for when they go to a film but yet at the same time they do have to meet you know, touch a certain demographic. I think the love, their love for, like I said, their love for Transformer comes from their love for Japanese uh, anime rather than for, you know, like Star Wars. Star Wars doesn't have a Japanese space or it doesn't have, it's all really American myth. And I think um, for, for you know, people my age to have to catch up to seven movies when they were kids, they don't. They can't. They were watching Japanese anime instead. That explains sort of the whole Transformers thing or the whole um, uh, Fury 7 sort of. It's a wide, actually, it's a much wider demo, demographic, pulls in a lot more wider demographics than 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 a film like Star Wars in China just because of the history. You know, a movie like people racing cars is going to reach way more is gonna to appeal to way more audiences than than a movie with old Harrison Ford. Let's face it, I mean, just like Marvel movies, Marvel movies is actually much driven by their love for it's not their love for the comics, it's their love for the for the whole cinematic universe. They don't know anything about the comic books, yeah. but they love the cinematic universe, starting from Iron Man. So actually Marvel Marvel films in China had taken years to build a fan base. Uh, starting with Iron Man. That's why uh, Marvel movies do well now, because they spent it's, it's actually credited to Marvel Studios, not credited to their love of sci-fi or whatever. It is because Marvel Studios took the time to, it's sort of indirect indirect effect, right? Because they took the time to slowly build this franchise up, and it worked out in China. I don't think the Holly, it's time for Hollywood to panic yet. They have, their summer is starting, they have a ton of they have a, they have Independence Day. Come on, they have an Independence Day movie coming. Independence Day is gonna do fine in China. It's gonna do great. It's alien invasion. It's only a second film in the franchise. They can they have time to catch up to the first film. Um, um, and and they have, you know, Captain America. They have a ton of sequels coming in in the summer. So so let's see what happens in the summer. I mean, I think talking about spring spring box office is almost pointless when, you know, spring is not really known to be like the most the most bustling time at, at a box office anywhere in the world, really.
1: Well, I will uh, urge folks to uh, try to check out the Variety article from uh, Patrick Frader. And especially uh, the thing that sort of catches my eye on the whole thing is it's got a really nice piece of artwork uh, done by, uh, looks like, Leonard DuPont who's created this, he's created sort of this image of the Great Wall. And there's a guy putting up movie posters um, but it's done in a somewhat, you know, sort of uh, slightly minimalist artistic style, uh, a little bit Warhol-ish, you might say. Very nice. You can I can make out it looks like the From Vegas to Macau two movie poster. Uh, Mojin, The Lost Legend, I think, is one of the posters. They've they're covering up a Batman v <laughs> Superman poster, and you can just make out BB8 on uh, the far right. But right smack dab in the middle. And Kevin, I don't know if you've seen this piece of art or not. I'm assuming you have. It looks like the um, General Guan Yu movie from from Donnie Yen. Lost Bladesman, yeah. But that's like such an old movie. Why is that there among all these new well, movies? And also, that film flopped in China. Um, it's it's a weird it's a weird choice to, to be to be sure because most of the other films are fairly fairly recent, like within the last year or so. But yeah, so to check it out, it's a it's a nice piece of artwork, um, and it's pretty. Uh, and also, I, actually, I think I do take one issue. Of the article is that Mr. Freighter,
0: or Patrick, I do know the guy. So um, he, he he sort of over plays up the value of this company called Jafflix. Although honestly, yeah, they do a lot of looking at the website. They do a uh, supposedly do a lot of um, uh, Hollywood China collaborations, especially through the uh, CCTV Movie Channel, but. I honestly don't know what they do. <laughs> I don't think they've I, I think they sort of overplay or over overemphasize the importance of that company in China. But anyway, that's the only real big issue I have, that article. Otherwise other than the fact of its reactionary stance on this whole whole issue. One last piece of news. Uh just a quick quick one. Um Paul, are you are you familiar with the works of director Wei Shen, uh, Cape Number no. Seven, Kano, Sidik Bali? I've seen one of those films.
1: Kate uh, number, number seven, seven,
0: yeah, yeah. So, so what? Well, since Cape number seven became like the biggest Taiwan film like of the decade at the time, um, so Ray Shun, his company has sort of taken, expanded in in ambition, making really big budget films like *Siri Bali*. *Siri Bali* is the two part epic about um, the Sirit tribe taking on the Japanese army. Back in like I think the 40s, um, he also produced his company also produced Kano, the three-hour baseball saga about a um, a team in, the, in southern Taiwan, a baseball team in southern Taiwan, and um, sort of their their uh, journey to the um, high school tournament in Japan. Also, it was a big budget, big big budget film. But it seems that for his latest film, Wei Shen, you sort of come back to basics. Uh, his latest film is called 52 Hertz. I love you. And it seems to be another music film, uh, in the, in the vein of Kate number seven. Um, the film shot for 39 days, which actually is, um, it, it's amazing because Cedric Bali took like nine months. Kano also took like nine months to shoot. So for Raita for to finish a film within like a month and a half, it's, it's pretty amazing. By the way, 52 Hertz I Love You was shooting um, around residential neighborhoods of Taipei uh, for the last month and a half or so. They finally wrapped up their shoot today. Um, uh, Even though the the shoot itself sort of caused some troubles, there were some complaints uh, by local residents when they were shooting the film about blocking streets and stuff like that. But the film is finished. Um, Not much has been announced. Um, The only major name actress they have in there is Cedric Pina, um, uh, who was last seen in Barbara Walters' Secret um she's also uh an actress actually um managed by by Tone wong Kar-wai's company but uh anyway the film is finished and it's it's going to post production now and it's ready to come out in for Luru new
1: year 2017 uh paul you still watch much taiwanese films the last one i think i saw was the one with the i think jay chow and uh, eric zhang kung fu dunk no 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 uh Rooftop. Treasure Hunter? Oh roof! Oh my! God. I I wish I could forget that movie. <laughs> um. Well. Well. Did you Did you like seven ball? I did. It, I I didn't really get the, the fervor over it. I know that it has a lot to do with sort of the nostalgia for Japanese ness and culture and whatnot. Um. So it, you know, it was. it was okay. I would say it. it um, was not something that I think is a. Something I want to go back to anytime soon, though. Well, yeah, did you expect that the director, I mean, since then sort of become
0: like the Steven Spielberg of, like, well, the guy who makes really big, the biggest budget films in Taiwan? It was, it was kind of a surprise. But yeah, it seems like he's kind of coming back to, to to basics. I mean, would you would you be interested in watching this one?
1: Yeah, yeah. Seems like it might be okay.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right, then we'll, we'll see in the new year, 2017. Excellent. Let's hope we get it. <laughs> We probably will. I mean, we got condom right? So we'll get it. Right?
1: And that's it for for the news. Why don't we take a short musical break, and we'll come back to talk about our film for this week? My wife is a superstar. Welcome back. Our film this week, My Wife is a Superstar from director Shirley Young Saolan, who previously worked on um, Angel Whispers, I believe, with uh, Carrie M. and... This is a, I guess, the uh, you know second film uh, where she's kind of flying solo uh, this time, no co-director. The film itself, uh, to give you sort of a brief synopsis of it, basically we have a um, central character uh, called Chu Kei. It's a kind of play on Chu Kei a little bit. played by Annie Liu. She is a young actress who longs for stardom, but is always relegated to the minor roles as an extra until one day she gets a lucky break when she catches the eye of Jeff, played by Alex Lam, who is a film producer. Uh, When she's offered the leading role in a famous director's film, she finds that her dreams may be finally turning into reality. But in an effort to protect her image, she claims to be single, which puts increasing pressure on her relationship with her husband, played by Paco Chow. He works as a journalist. And to make matters worse he finds himself relegated to the tabloid news department of his paper and he is asked to cover the rumors of a secret marriage by this upcoming star also known as K. so yeah this is a a story which when i watched it i kept you know kept popping in my head this is a kind of adaptation although somewhat loosely adapted from the sort of star is born uh, kind of idea so You basically have the idea here of one character's rise to stardom and the other characters sort of fall. Now, in this case, the husband character played by Paco Chow, he's not a celebrity, but he's like desiring to be a famous news correspondent of like a war reporter kind of thing. Um, But he finds that his job keeps getting worse and worse and he's relegated to basically becoming a paparazzi. So she's finding success. Well, he's kind of you know losing the, the success in his career path. There are quite a few film references to Wong Kar Wai, both direct and indirect. Um, particularly his film Twenty Forty Six. The film in question, which she gets sort of uh, tagged to be the lead in, is called Twenty Forty Seven. Um, now there's a play on the words here, which kind of escaped me. Maybe Kevin, can you give us some insight into this? Was it two oh
0: two two oh four
1: seven? Yeah, it was it was some because the joke here is is that it's supposed to be like Wang Karwai. They don't call him Wong Karwai, they call him Kawai. Uh and he wears glasses just like Wang Karwai does and the, the outfit they end up giving her is very much um like the sort of sci fi outfit that um I think Fei Wong wears, right, in twenty forty six. And except, there's they throw in this hopping vampire, and th- there's th- there's questions about the name of this being <laughs> relegated to 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 something more of a horror film than an actual right. art film, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So actually, because you know how how words in in
0: Cantonese can become different, like the same pronunciation but actually be different words. Like so, instead of in thin- writing out the numbers, he wrote. Out, uh, he turned those sounds into words, and it sounds like a, a horror film. That's yeah. essentially uh, like a supernatural film. Right, right. Uh, so essentially, it, it's sort of mocking um, Wong Kar Wai. Sort of what he does is that he promises or tells his investors nothing, and then he comes up with something that's completely unexpected. Because uh, Shirley Young is actually a, a film executive. She's a, a film executive at at Sundream, which is, you know, the producer, the company that produced the film. Um, so I think she's making, she's mocking these people from like a film executive
1: um, perspective, I yeah. guess. Right. Yeah, so that, that they, they kind of come back to this kind of, of uh, humor and, and gags that is sort of making fun contextually of the film industry itself at times. Um, the guy playing, the actor playing uh, Karwai in this case, is uh, Li Sheng Cheng, who you may not recognize, because, again, he's always in glasses and kind of puffing on a cigarette, Uh, but he was the dragonfish demon in Stephen Chow's Journey to the West, Conquering Demons, and he was one of the police officers in Mermaid. So, um, you know, look out for him if you do catch this film. Annie Liu, though, takes the spotlight here. She's the sort of the lead, and she tries to do her best Audrey Hepburn and uh, they make this very directed in your face she's a big fan of Audrey Hepburn she's got posters strewn about her place that she talks to as if they're sentient and one scene they actually dress her up in a very Audrey Hepburn-esque kind of outfit uh, akin to Breakfast at Tiffany's with her hair done up and and everything and you kinda see that reflected on the the film poster itself Um, you'll see how she's kinda done up in that style of look So the film has lots of contextual references to that, to Hong Kong films. For me, that ended up kind of being the most interesting part of the film because at the core, the film is trying to be about the relationship between the husband and wife here and the sacrifices that they supposedly make for each other. The problem for me is that it really lacks a sense of balance. You quickly realize that Annie Liu's character is the worst person ever. (laughs) Because she is basically having princess syndrome um, throughout the film. She gets successful, and then she tries to keep this charade going so she can keep her success, um, neglecting her husband, not really paying any recognition to his, his desires and dreams at all. But despite that, even before she had success, she wasn't really you know uh, that good of a partner that good of a wife so basically Paco Chow's character is doing everything you know he's bringing home the bacon but he's also taking care of her and she doesn't she's not reciprocal so then when she starts to find success you know she she's not uh, conducive to his problems she's just basically you know going out with the producer and its you know sending a lot of mixed messages she's not cheating on him or anything but it, it it rides this line of. What does it mean to be supportive of your partner? And at, at well, what point Paul, do well, you Paul, take she,
0: she does the heart dance.
1: Yeah, the heart <laughs> dance. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes everything better, right? The, the apologetic heart dance. Um, which is this little sort of thing, this dance that she does uh, whenever she wants to say she's sorry. And actually, they have little animated hearts that sort of fly uh, through the screen. You know, it's cute for the moment that they do it, uh, but it doesn't... It, it doesn't really speak to what I think is, a, is, is actually a, a, some more interesting content. This film has an interesting premise. It's just not written very well. It, it tries to stay too much in the comedy side of rom-coms. And I like rom-coms. I say this as somebody who really enjoys rom-coms. But I think that there's a smarter film here that peaks out at times. And they just didn't, they didn't find sort of the right tone for the, for the content. So as a couple, the chemistry between the actors, between uh, Paco Chow and Annie Liu, I think, for me, didn't work most of the time. I had a very difficult time actually seeing them feeling that they were an actual married couple. I know that Annie Liu is considered a, a goddess in Hong Kong, right? That's her one of her sort of Cantonese uh, nicknames is uh, Noi San, right? And Marie. And so a lot of people think she's, you know, just super attractive and, and the ideal sort of Hong Kong female. I, I don't necessarily have that kind of same, same view of her. And in this particular role, I just tended to find her a bit annoying more than, more than anything else. I, I didn't feel a lot of sympathy for her, maybe a little bit at the beginning when, you know, she's basically getting picked on by people who are, you know, stereotypically caricatured to be mean and, and to be uh, nasty but I do think that the idea they were trying to go for here was something that they could have dug a bit deeper with this idea of you know if you're in a relationship with somebody who's in the industry what are the kinds of pressures what are the kinds of things that you would ultimately face again they tend to stay on the comedy side of it rather than trying to delve a little bit more deeply into that issue and and the the, the point is is that when they do sort of get to that pinnacle moment where they're arguing, you know, her big defense is, you know, you know how many guys wanted to date me, but I picked you. You know, I could have dated lots of other guys. And so it, it just kind of lacks maturity, I think, in terms of the the, the writing of the characters. I will say that the, the scene where they sort of get to the climax and they have their big fight, um, the two actors handled that scene really, really well. That was like sort of the one point of the film where I really started to feel... A bit of the connectivity between the two characters but through most of it i just i just wasn't feeling it Uh, alex lamb is there too he's the producer he's also he you, you know he's attracted to Annie liu um he's not lecherous or anything like that you know it's not like he's doing the casting couch kind of thing you know he thinks she's attractive and he's trying to you know give her a leg up so he yeah he's just kind of there through most of the movie. I think too that there are some interesting parallels here that maybe are being drawn upon between some some real world events like the breakup between Ronald Cheng and Charlene Choi, and you know the idea of paparazzi sort of prying into the life of of superstars. Here too they don't get really serious about it, but they they have a one scene where they have a press conference that the thing that flashed back to my mind was the press conference between the two of them. And again, here too, I also thought that it was just another moment where they, you know, had some interesting things to work with. They just didn't execute them well. I think that there's there's still potential to take this idea and, and to, to sort of run with it and, and create something a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more interesting, It'd still be funny, um, but really sort of trying to be a little bit more honest with the way, you know, people would behave in relationships. I think quite a few mid tier cameos show up throughout, you know, people that you, you might recognize, you might not know their name of, um, I love you boys showed up like late in the film, like, wait, I haven't seen those guys forever. You know, um, where did they dig them up from? So yeah, there's no, not a lot of big names, you know, tanky teen and some others, uh, you'll recognize in, in some spots the main thing i would say though is that in the context of these kinds of films where you are dealing with sort of the star is born kind of issues there are films that have done this a little bit better um so i would say before you work your way to this one you might want to check out those films first and that would include titles like uh charlene choi and diva Ahe, um Ching wan and uh, the cast for my name is fame And also, more recently, uh, Joey Young and uh, Meg Lam in uh, the film Diva. So I think they all are sort of dealing with this idea of sort of the rise uh, to some form of stardom in the local industry, be it music or film. And just have more interesting overall execution than this film does. And again, you know, I wouldn't say that this is a terrible film. It's got a few laughs in places. It looks fine in terms of, you know, the lighting, the cinematography, all of that is, is fine for what it's trying to do. The, the best moments for me, again, were where it's playing with context of things between Hong Kong cinema, between Western cinema. So if you're a cinema fan, I think there are some moments there that you'll appreciate and, and, and you'll enjoy. But the overall story between the two, I think, just left me feeling a little bit lacking. I, I, I think it was a missed opportunity that they could have done more with. So normally I would say this is the time for Kevin to chime <laughs> in, but we're going to forego that this week. He's going to recuse himself because he actually <laughs> w- actually worked on this film a little bit. I, I subtitled the film. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: so yeah, I saw the finished product over the weekend, just as you did. Um, yeah. I it usually I think I would be less hesitant to talk about the
1: film when I have really great things to say about it. So I'm going to stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Your silence speaks volumes, sir. And the the sad thing is, is that I, when I went in to see it um, late last week, I knew that Kevin had worked on it. And so I'm sitting there in the credits, you know, everybody's leaving and I'm, I'm pulling out my phone because I want to take a snapshot when Kevin's name pops up and say, just so I could, you know, send him a WhatsApp and say, Hey, yeah, there's your name. And I didn't see it. And I thought, what, did I miss it? Did I blink? And uh lo and behold, they did not credit the subtitler in this case. So it happens. Yes. Damn them, sir. Damn yes. them. Another film that you would not see
0: my name on, but I did work on. Um you you won't see it in Hong Kong, I think. It might be on maybe on DVD, but um if you're in the States, I think this week you would get a film called Phantom of the Theatre. Uh, directed by Yip Waiman or Raymond Yip Uh, it's a horror film Um, I mentioned this earlier it's the sort of the uh, new film from the team that made the house that never dies Um, I also English subtitled that film but uh, because I saw the finished product which means they were not going to redo the end credits to fit my name in but just so you know I also worked on that film
1: so maybe you could just briefly you know for the audience who are out there listening who may not have a a good understanding of, of, of the process. When you do the subtitling work, you are basically just taking this, the, the script and translating it, or you're taking a a, a different kind of document that's because they've already obviously done the dialogue and that might've deviated from the script.
0: Yeah. Um, usually I would, of course they would give me the file of the dialogue. Um, if, if, the company's ready to go to get me to an Excel file. So I'm just matching line to line. But of course, excuse me, I can't just, I can't just say, write down what the line means, right? Because I have to actually watch the action. Um, so, so I would usually ask for a screener or ask for a script to know what the action is going on. So I can actually, you know, do a proper, proper, uh, uh, version of dialogue. Um, um, just like you might actually see, maybe there was a line or two in uh, this this film because I didn't get to see a, a finished product that I might have. I think I might have done better, a little better, if I actually saw a video of it. Uh, if I actually had a chance to sort of reflect what is on the screen. Um, and also, what they gave me was actually the um, the dialogue list for the mainland Chinese release, which means that um, the colloquial Cantonese slang version of dialogue comes out a little differently. Than the actual written form of it and i was actually translating the written form of it uh also the, the the actors also did deviate the uh from the script a little bit so even though i had the cantonese version of the script um which i translated from um they didn't some of them still didn't really match but um i also do script translations and, and script translation it's usually for for buyers overseas buyers or executives or things like that whereas subtitles is is really trying to let the under the, the audience understand what's being said and actually takes less time to do than than the script because the script is all action and and dialogue and the entire thing
1: all right well there you go folks now you have a better understanding of the whole convoluted subtitling process so the next time you see some wacky subtitles on a hong kong film you have a little bit of understanding of why that happens right Actually, there's another kind of thing that I have to defend against
0: subtitlers. Because Cantonese, or Chinese in general, you can fit a lot of meaning into, say, like a 16 character. So there are character limits. Like, you can't just write a sentence as long as you want on a subtitle because there are character limits. The screen has limited space. So... Um, Chinese has a has a way of actually fitting in lots of meaning within a let's say a thirty character sentence that's rather long. But in English, you actually need about two three sentences to cover all of it. So so that is really the challenge of an English subtitler for for Chinese film, which is to try and fit in so much meaning. You know, try to try to translate a packed sentence in like a short English sentence that that doesn't that you know if if people are speaking quickly then obviously the eyes aren't going to have enough time to read a long sentence, so you also have to write like a long enough... Write a, match the length of the Chinese to make sure that people can read it in time. It's just a little technical things that I've actually learned along the way, like... My first subtitling job was actually um, Hot Summer Days, and I had no idea how to subtitle a film at that point. So it was actually really crappy, and, and a lot of my stuff got changed. Up to now, um, I've actually learned a ton of stuff about subtitling, and, and it's still an art that, that, you know, really needs to be slowly... I'm still trying to slowly figure out what to do with
1: this. Maybe you can write a book. Teach a Class. Subtitling no. by Kevin Ma. <laughs> Probably not, Paul. Probably not. <laughs> For listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast, visit kongcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Javor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily LoveHKFilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also receive a tremendous amount of support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website over at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can follow us over on Twitter. That is Twitter.com at Kongcast. You can check us out on uh, email if you want to, you know, send us a question or send us some commentary. Uh, we might just read it here on the show. That is eastscreen at gmail.com. And we are over on the Facebook. That is East S, West S. And we usually post, you know, what film we're going to be talking about and, um, you know, announce when the episode is ready for your downloading pleasure. You can also follow Kevin and what he does, whether he's uh, subtitling or he's, you know, flying through the air with the greatest of ease. Uh, where can they find out more about user? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh,
0: I'm at the Golden Rock. That's one word at the Golden Rock. You can read my work every month uh, on Cathay Pacific or on the Dragonair flight in the Discovery magazine or the Silk Road magazine. I'm the entertainment uh, editor, so check out the entertainment sections where we have a couple of great columns about films and also the movie listings. So you know, if you like watching movies on the plane, you kind of have to look at the magazine. Um, but if you are not flying uh anytime soon and you have an ipad you can check out our columns uh um on your ipad with your ipad discovery ipad app which you can find on the uh the itunes uh, app store only for the ipad by the way um or you can email me if you have any questions or you have any criticism of how i do want the show uh email me at the at
1: at gmail.com uh that's one word that at at gmail.com all right, excellent. Our next show, episode 191. Um, not sure what we're going to be doing. We have talked about perhaps doing a sort of breakdown of Hollywood superhero cinema or just a general sort of talk um, about that and about you know some of the other issues floating around out there right now. Um, we're going to perhaps try and pull that off if we can and bring maybe a, an extra guest host or two on board still trying to work out the logistics of that but we'll be talking about something for sure on episode 91 uh at 191 i should say we're just still not sure what that's going to be but all of that and more will be on our next show until then this is the east screen west screen podcast saying civil war baby and we'll see you next time i'm on team captain
0: panther something all right see you next time everybody